This is the Daily Signal podcast for Tuesday, August 6th. I'm Rachel Del Judas. And I'm Daniel Davis. Back-to-back mass shootings over the weekend have left the nation in deep mourning and grasping for answers. Today, we'll take a close look at exactly what happened in those two shootings and remember those who perished. We'll be joined by heritage legal expert Amy Swearer. Plus, 22% of millennials say they have no friends. We'll give our millennial takes. And don't forget, if you're enjoying this podcast, please consider leaving a review or a five-star rating on iTunes and encourage others to subscribe. Now, on to our top news. The death count from the El Paso, Texas shooting is now up to 22, with another victim dying on Monday morning. That attack was carried out on Saturday at a Walmart by a white supremacist who openly targeted Hispanics. In addition to the 22 killed, 24 are wounded. And just hours after that shooting, an armed young man in Dayton, Ohio, an avowed leftist and Satanist, opened fire, killing nine people and injuring 27. Within 30 seconds of opening fire, the shooter was killed by a police officer. On Monday, President Trump grieved the loss of victims in a speech from the White House. These barbaric slaughters are an assault upon our communities, an attack upon our nation, and a crime against all of humanity. We are outraged and sickened by this monstrous evil, the cruelty, the hatred, the malice, the bloodshed, and the terror. Our hearts are shattered for every family whose parents, children, husbands, and wives were ripped from their arms and their lives. The president also condemned hate and white supremacy. The shooter in El Paso posted a manifesto online consumed by racist hate. In one voice, our nation must condemn racism, bigotry, and white supremacy. These sinister ideologies must be defeated. Hate has no place in America. Hatred warps the mind, ravages the heart, and devours the soul. The president also announced that the Justice Department would push for the death penalty for these kinds of mass murders. Earlier in the weekend on Twitter, the president floated the idea of strong background checks, but didn't go into further detail. Top Democrats, however, are directly blaming President Trump for the massacres over the weekend. Here's what Beto O'Rourke, a former congressman who represented El Paso, had to say. He's, he's been calling Mexican immigrants rapists and criminals. Um, I, I don't know, like members of the press, what the f***? Hold on a second. You know, I, 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 it's, it's, these, um, it's these questions that you know the answers to. I mean, connect the dots about what he's been doing in this country. Um, he's not tolerating racism. He is promoting racism. He's not tolerating violence. He's inciting racism and violence in this country. New Jersey Senator Cory Booker also blamed the president. We are all responsible to each other in this country. We have moral bonds and fabric of our country. We have a president of the United States who is particularly responsible. Uh, I, I, in my faith, have this idea that you reap what you sow, and he is sowing seeds of hatred in our country. And this harvest of hate violence that we're seeing right now uh, lies at his feet. When you have the president from the highest moral office in our land talking about invasions and infestations and shithole countries, the kind of things that come out of his mouth that so harm the moral fabric of our nation, he is responsible. 
Well, Mexico is considering suing the United States after seven Mexican nationals were killed in the El Paso shooting. Mexican Foreign Minister Marcelo Ebrard called the shooting an act of barbarism and a terrorist attack against innocent Mexicans. In a video posted on Twitter, he said that the Mexican president had instructed him to, quote, ensure that Mexico's indignation translates into efficient, prompt, expeditious, and forceful legal actions for Mexico to take a role and demand that conditions are established that protect Mexicans in the United States, end quote. China is balking at President Trump's decision to impose new tariffs on Chinese imports. The Chinese government retaliated by devaluing its currency, the yuan, to its weakest level in more than a decade. China is also asking businesses within its country to stop importing agricultural products from the U.S. Those decisions follow President Trump's announcement last week that the U.S. would add 10% tariffs to $300 billion of Chinese goods. On Twitter, the president said, quote, Based on the historic currency manipulation by China, it is now even more obvious to everyone that Americans are not paying for the tariffs. They are being paid for compliments of China, and the U.S. is taking tens of billions of dollars. China has always used currency manipulation to steal our businesses and factories, hurt our jobs, depress our workers' wages, and harm our farmers' prices. Not anymore. End quote. Texas Congressman Kenny Marchant announced on Monday that he will not run for re-election in 2020. That makes him the 12th Republican member of Congress and the third Texas member to announce retirement. Texas Congressman Will Hurd and Pete Olson also recently announced their retirements. All three men won their districts by five percentage points or less in 2018. Up next, we'll talk to Amy Swear about the mass shootings from over the weekend. If you're tired of high taxes, fewer health care choices, and bigger and bigger government, it's time to partner with the most impactful conservative organization in America. We're the Heritage Foundation, and we're committed to solving the issues America faces. Together, we'll fight back against the rising tide of homegrown socialism, and we'll fight for conservative solutions that are making families more free and more prosperous. But we can't do it without you. Please join us at heritage.org. Joining us now in the studio is Amy Swear, a senior legal policy analyst at the Heritage Foundation. Amy, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. So news of these two shootings spread quickly over the weekend, and um, our thoughts this week are with the families who are grieving their lost loved ones. Um, this is such a difficult thing to process. We've seen this many times now. Um, Amy, walk us through exactly what happened in these two shootings on Saturday. Right. So we we had two um, just atrocious. I, I mean, there's no other the way to, to say that than the, these were atrocities. Um, but two two atrocities within I think like six hours of each other. Um, one in El Paso, Texas. Uh, you had a an individual who walked into a, a crowded Walmart um, with. You know, families going to get back to school supplies, um, and he he walked in with a semi-automatic rifle and just opened fire indiscriminately. Um, and I, I think that the death toll in that uh, tragedy has now reached 22. Um, that shooter was taken alive, um, so he is in custody. Uh, and then just several hours later, at a bar, so it's about 1:30 in the morning at a, a bar in Dayton, Ohio. 
uh, where you had another shooter uh, walk in and, and again, just fire indiscriminately. I I believe it started outside the bar. Um, He was prevented from going inside the bar um, where uh, he was confronted by law enforcement. uh, I mean, within an incredibly short time, something like under a minute. Um, Yeah, I read 30 seconds. Yeah. uh, I I mean, just a very, very short time. um, And I believe that casualty count is now up to to nine dead and, and a couple dozen injured as well. Um, and uh, he was not taken alive. He was killed at the scene. Um, and so you just had, in a, in a very short period of time, two very, very devastating uh, tragedies in, in two communities that are otherwise considered very safe communities um, that are now uh, grieving over, over completely senseless acts of violence. So these two shootings took place within hours of each other. What do you make of the incredibly close timing? Uh, you know, I... We're still seeing a lot of facts come out, um, and, and there's no indication uh, that these were specifically related to each other or, or that one was spurred by the other. Um, you know, they, they could have happened entirely separately. Um, though what we do know uh, from the research is that uh, there does seem to be this this effect in, in the media um, where when one of these types of uh, events happens— one of these mass shootings happens, it, it almost lowers the threshold for individuals who, you know, are kind of on the fence, who are contemplating this. Um, and it, it mentally in their mind makes it easier for that to occur. Um, and, and so considering that we're not just dealing with these two, but there was um, a, another one in Gilroy, California earlier in the week, um, that regardless of whether or not they're specifically related uh, in the sense that you know they, they spurred each other on specifically, um, there almost certainly is a sense in which just the, the publicity surrounding um, the, the previous incidents has just made it easier for that next, uh, you know, would-be shooter to, to take those steps. Um, and so, again, nothing specific, but there is that general sense in which, uh, of course, they spur each other on. So the Opaso shooter uh, appears to, be, to have been a white nationalist who traveled out there to specifically attack Hispanics, um, and the Dayton shooter was a Satanist and militant leftist uh, who uh, openly wanted said he wanted socialism. Um, what role do you think these ideologies played in motivating the shooting and uh, the way they carried out their actions? Uh, well, I, th- I think definitely in the El Paso shooting, um, th- there's a much clearer connection between the ideology uh, and the action itself. Um, you know, he, he released a, a manifesto, and I, I've not read it. I, I don't wish to give him that satisfaction of, of knowing that people are reading it. But uh, apparently it is, as you said, just, just completely white nationalistic ideology. He intended to target Hispanics um, and uh, completely played into that, that, that he had a, a reason for that. Um, the, the, the second individual in Dayton, a lot less clear cut. Uh, they haven't released a motive um, though definitely just a very different ideological bent generally for, from what you get on his social media. Um, and I think really what you're seeing, uh, not just in these two, but across the board with these types of shootings, uh, is a phenomenon in which you have young men who are, are dealing with a lot of uh, mental and emotional problems, even if they're not you know, psychotic or insane in any sort of like mental illness definition, they're dealing with a lot of things mentally. Um, and they're looking for ideologies that are telling them how to target that anger at people. Um, and uh, unfortunately, in, in the case in El Paso, we saw 
that was white nationalism, which is an abhorrent philosophy um, that I, I think we can all agree um, needs to be roundly condemned for for what it is, which is abhorrent. Um, and, and regardless of you know the the specific motivations in, in Dayton, um, you know you, you had someone who was looking at very different philosophies and 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 ways of, of routing that anger, um, even if it's we don't really have the specifics of of how much that played into it, um, but but definitely, I mean, with El Paso, that there's no question um, that underlying philosophy played a significant role in getting him to that point. Speaking of the Dayton shooter, he was a graduate student in the Master of Cancer Care program uh, at St. Francis University and apparently was one week away from completing his internship with cancer survivors, uh, according to CNN. It's hard to understand why someone like this would lower himself to commit a murder the way he did, the shootings that he did. Do you think mental illness was at play here? Or what was what do you see as potential um, scenarios in this situation? Yeah, well, well look, again, we, we are still waiting for, for facts to come out. I, I mean, in the Dayton scenario, um, even just some of the facts that have come out, we're looking at an individual who was not um, in a mentally sound or stable place. Uh, apparently, he also had lists of fellow students that, you know, he was planning on on shooting and uh, possibly even had looked at committing a, a school shooting on his campus. So so clearly we're, we're dealing with an individual who's not uh, in a sound state of mind. And that's something we've seen before, uh, right? Like with the the Aurora uh, movie theater shooter in, in I believe, 2012, um, where, you know, you, you had an individual who was, again, I think he was getting his Ph.D. or his master's. Um, and was otherwise in, you know, we'd consider a good place in society. Um, but in that specific instance, it was clearly due to mental health problems um, where he just kind of spiraled out of control and, and no one caught it uh, in time. Um, so it, it'll be interesting to see in, in this case, as the facts come out, um, you know, whether there had been a recent history of, of people spotting those those mental health red flags, um, because that's that's often the case. And it sounds like even just from the little bit we have, um, even if he wasn't diagnosably mentally ill, he he was not in a stable state of mind. What do you make of the fact that the Dayton shooter was apparently pro-gun control and actually openly complained about uh, mass shootings in the past? Well, again, we're, we're dealing with someone who, if you're not in a very rational state of mind, he may not have been putting two and two together. Um, though, though it is possible. I mean, we saw this with um, the the New Zealand shooter uh, within the last couple of months, where he chose firearms as a means of making a point uh, in and ratcheting up the, the the dissension between people on on a very contentious issue. Uh, and so, I, I don't I don't know what his motivation was in in doing the very thing he abhorred. Um, you know, wh- whether he was intending to make a point uh, about gun control uh, in a very uh, perverse way. Uh, but, uh, I mean, clearly at the end of the day, he, he made a decision to, to take human lives with, with firearms. And, um, but, but again, we're, we're dealing with someone who clearly is not in a rational state of mind. So last year after a previous mass shooting, CNN's Don Lemon said, quote, we have to stop demonizing people and realize the biggest terror threat in this country is white men, most of them radicalized to the right. And we have to start doing something about them, end quote. So is there something, Amy, that you see about the white male demographic being a particular threat? This is a very, very interesting quote from Don Lemon, I think for two reasons. 
Um, so the, the first is that it's a case of a kernel of statistical truth just being oversimplified and just grossly applied across the board to all white men. And I think the, the second thing that makes it interesting is that on the one hand, he's saying, uh, you know, we need to stop demonizing people, but with the exception of of white men who are going to demonize and profile because they're the biggest threat. Uh, and so w- let's unpack that for a second. So uh, on the one hand, statistically, when we're talking about mass public shooters, um, so not all gun violence, um, not just a very, very specific form of, of gun violence, uh, it is true that the majority of mass public shooters do happen to be young white men. Uh, now, that can't get stretched across the board to all gun violence. Um, you'll find that there are very specific subsets of gun violence um, that are very much associated with with other demographics. Um, but for mass public shooters, yes, it is young white men um, carrying out a, a very, very small percentage of all gun crime in the United States. In terms of what that means, I think I'd come to a very different conclusion than, than Don Lemon would here, which is not to say that um, young white men are just across the board the, the biggest threat to the United States. Um, that's a, a bit absurd. I mean, we wouldn't say that about uh, any other demographic. Um, you know, I think part of this has to do also with the way that we have tried to uh, come to grips with terror in the United States since 9-11, which has been predominantly focused on Islamic radicalism, um, you know, for very obvious reasons on the heels of a terror attack that was motivated by Islamic radicalist ideology. Um, and, and so there, there is some truth there to, to this idea of we do need to start taking white nationalistic terror seriously as a, as a concept of terror. Um, you know, because we haven't really delved into you know, how do we how do we stop and prevent these types of attacks in the same way that we have necessarily with um, you know, Islamic fundamentalism. Um, and I think across the board, they need to be treated equally. Um, but but to then take it that next step and say, this is the biggest threat to the United States. Uh, you know, one, statistically, it's just not true. Uh, mass public shootings account, again, for just a very, very small percentage of all firearm deaths every year. Um, you know, we, we have much bigger problems with suicide, with gang violence, um, with domestic uh, intimate partner violence um, that are not primarily motivated by the same subset of, of young white men. Um, and so it's, again, just gross oversimplification. And it, and it doesn't help anyone uh, when, when you oversimplify problems like that. All it does is lead people to look for solutions that, that aren't going to help because you're focused on the wrong problems. Well, the flags are flying at half-mast this week uh, to remind us of the victims, and we'll continue to follow the story as it develops. Uh, Amy, thanks for being on today. Thank you so much for having me. What the heck is trickle-down economics? Does the military really need a space force? What is the meaning of American exceptionalism? I'm Michelle Cordero. I'm Tim Desher, and every week on the Heritage Explains podcast, we break down a hot-button policy issue in the news at a 101 level. Through an entertaining mix of personal stories, media clips, music, and interviews, we help you actually understand the issues. So do this. Subscribe to Heritage Explains on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts today. 
Well, millennials range from ages 23 to 38, which is what some consider the prime of social life. But a new study suggests that millennials might be the loneliest generation in America. The new study conducted by YouGov found that 30% of millennials say they always or often feel lonely. That's the highest percentage of all the generations surveyed. By contrast, 20% of Generation X and 15% of baby boomers said they were lonely. But perhaps most shocking is that 22% of millennials said they had zero friends, and 30% said they had no best friends. So, Rachel, are these numbers just proof that we're headed toward an inevitable incel future? I mean, personally, I hope not, but I think it's something I should that, hope not. <laughs> I hope not, but I think it's something we need to be aware of. I mean, first of all, in order for you know there to be a marriage and children and all of that, guys need to be able to ask girls out, and many guys today don't know how to do that. And that's that's a sad fact. And I think this uh, survey, this poll hits it on the head. However, I do have to say that I think a lot. Um, I mean, it's not I don't think it's false to say that a lot of us have ourselves to blame because with the advent of social media and millennials using it so much, I think it's become we've turned more to that into like virtual friendships and relationships versus you know, actually having face-to-face one-on-one relationships with people. I mean, like, let's look at this. Like, it's not uncommon. So myself on Facebook, I have, like, not to toot my own horn, I have about, like, I have over about 1,500 friends on Facebook. I have a couple hundred, uh, about 600 followers on Instagram. And people, like, I have friends who have thousands of followers on Instagram. And they're connecting with all these people on Instagram, and people are watching each other's stories and commenting. And I think at least, I mean, I've seen this happen with myself and with others. I feel like it gives us a false sense of closeness to people because we can see what our friends are doing all day, every day. We can comment on them. We can react. We can send those like little hard eyes or be like, oh, that's really cool. And so we have this like false sense of closeness, but we're not actually, you know, checking in on people, actually communicating, having those one-on-one interactions or even conversations over the phone. I mean, I know millennials. I don't mind talking on the phone. I actually love it, Daniel. I don't know about you, but I have a lot of millennials who complain like, oh, like, please never call me. Only text me. Like, I will not answer a phone call. That's kind of scary. I don't know. I mean, is that scary to you? Actually, it's funny you mentioned that because I find myself sometimes in a situation where I really need to get a hold of somebody Yeah. and I'm like texting them and they won't answer. (laughs) And I'm like, well, I'm just out of options here because, I mean, what else is I'm like, oh, I realize this is actually a phone in my hand, so I guess I could try to call them. Right. But that seems so direct and, and, and uh, I don't know, intrusive It's almost like maybe? an invasion of space for yeah. millennials. And it's like we need to get beyond that because if we're not able to have meaningful conversations over the phone, like much less in person, I mean, how sad is this? And I, it's, you know, when I have visit friends or even talk to my siblings and, you know, their friends at school and what they're doing, I mean, thank goodness I've got some friends that are awesome conversationalists and they don't mind phone calls. But I think it's really sad. There are people out there that are just like, please don't call me. Like I've had people actually say that. It's kind of like, wow, this is sad. Wow. Don't call me, maybe. (laughs) Oh, man. So I was also intrigued by your first comment, which was that, um, guys are not asking girls out. I'm actually not sure what made you think of this, but I'm curious your thoughts. Yeah, so I actually had a conversation with a friend over the weekend about this, and we were both talking about uh, schools that we both went to. One of my friends went to a Christian school on the East Coast. I'm not going to name it because <laughs> lots of people <laughs> I know went there, and I don't want to call anyone out. And then I went to, for two years, uh, to a, a private Christian school in Ohio, and we were both talking about the fact that I was there for two years because I transferred there. I was just at a state school beforehand and she was there for all four years. We were both talking about the fact that we were never asked out once 
by a guy during that time. And how many of our friends also, like at my school and at her school, were also never asked out. Were they asked to hang out? They were asked, yes. You like were asked That was to a thing out? that happened, but yeah. you were never like asked out on right. a date. And it's tragic. I mean, like we were talking about the fact that these are places where we, we chose to go because we respect them. We're yeah. with like-minded people. In my case, I couldn't afford all four years at this private That's Christian school. That's yeah. remarkable at a Christian school. At a Christian school. And we're saying here we are among these all these These are the like-minded people that people. are supposed to be like yes. happy breeders. <laughs> that too. Yeah. Like wanting to actually plan for the future, you know, get married, pursue a, a marriage relationship. And that didn't happen during, you know, my two years at my school or at my friend's. And we were talking about, it was not only us, but like multitudes of other girls that we've had similar conversations with. And I mean, how sad is it? You're at a Christian school with like-minded people who are wanting to pursue marriage and, you know, intentional Maybe you guys just should have had a Sadie Hawkins dance where the girls ask the guys. We, yeah, we did have those. They were very... Or are you like against that? I'm not, well... I, okay, here's my thing. I mean, I'll, I will be honest with you for a second here. I... I'm, I I think in theory that can be okay. I just, as a first interaction, I would not, that would not be something that I would do. Be like, I'm <laughs> not going to make the first call here. That's not something I would yeah. do. So I had friends who did that and that's their, that's their call. But it would like, if I were to, if I had my eye on someone, I just think it would be inappropriate. And this is old fashioned Rachel talking, but I wouldn't be the first one to make the move. I know other people do it differently, but that's just not me. Yeah. It's a complaint that I've heard a lot too. I mean, in college and in church, I mean, it's kind of. I've heard it kind of everywhere. It seems to be a common phenomenon. Um, I think there's some like illegitimate reasons why guys may not ask girls out, like maybe being noncommittal or too afraid of rejection mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. Which well, you know is, is fear. Out. Yeah. You know, for you know, if they've been rejected in the past. Um, but then there's also like I think there are some legitimate reasons because once you do ask someone out and you know, it is opening the door to like hurting someone or being hurt mm-hmm. or or hurting someone. Um, and, and you don't want that. Like you want to make sure that you're in it. But again, a date is a date, right? And that's all it is, right? And we need to so, realize that. And you know, day I age. think oftentimes, especially in the Christian world, you know, guys can tend to think, "Oh man, if, if I ask her on the date, I just gotta have the ring ready and just kind of like ask her to marry me." And that's just, I'm not ready for that. And and you know, it doesn't that's have to be that way. There doesn't need to be all that pressure. And I think if there's more intentionality and more honesty, which you know are good virtues, but they're not honestly that terrifying, we could we could do a lot more. We'd have more to work with here. Well, good words, Rachel. Um, hopefully we'll find other topics that can lead to this because that's really interesting. Um, well, that's going to do it for today's episode. Thanks for listening to the Daily Signal podcast brought to you from the Robert H. Bruce Radio Studio at the Heritage Foundation. Please be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud. And please leave us a review or a rating on iTunes to give us any feedback. We'll see you again tomorrow. The Daily Signal podcast is executive produced by Kate Trinko and Daniel Davis. Sound designed by Lauren Evans and Thalia Rampersad. For more information, visit DailySignal.com.